Okay, welcome back to Firewall. As usual, I'm your host, Bradley Tusk. Uh, today is a Tuesday episode, so as usual, we've got our host and producer, not our host, our, pa, our friend and producer, Bradley, Hugo you're the Hengren. host. I'm you're the host, host. <laughs> that's right. Uh, everything changed on Labor Day. Uh, Hugo, how's it going? It's good. Uh, we're here on a rainy, we're actually recording, we usually do this on Monday, we're recording on Tuesday, and we're here at P&T Knitwear, um, and it's pretty gray, disgusting day in New York City. Yeah, it's, it's, it's raining, and but it's not cold. So I, I basically, it's cold or not cold is sort of the binary thing for me. So if it's, I don't like the rain, but if it's raining in 70, I can live with it. All right. Um, a couple of things I wanted to just announce at the top. So the first is, and I'm supposed to say this every podcast and I usually don't, but we are recording from P&T Knitwear. It is a bookstore and podcast studio on the Lower East Side of Manhattan. 180 Orchard located Street. 180 Orchard Street. Um, I own it, so would really love people to come check it out if you like this podcast. But we've got some like really amazing events this week to the point where I feel like the store is almost kind of turning the corner a little bit. It's totally turning the corner. And, and so let me just quickly. So tonight um, is Amy Fusselman, who wrote a novel called The Means. And uh, it's her first novel, and it's all about kind of power and ambition and real estate and money in New York City. And, and that's kind of you know the stuff that at least I really like, and I think probably some of the listeners like too. Um, and then two really big events. So Gary Steingart, who's the author of um, Super Sad uh, Love Story and Our Country Friends and Absurdistan and, and so many other really successful books, is uh, reading from his uh, novel, Our Country Friends, here Wednesday night at 7 o'clock. Uh, it just went into paperback. Um, I enjoyed the book quite a bit, so recommend that. He's also sort of an entertaining guy. I met him. It's a funny story. So uh, my friend Rob Galligan and I, you know, back in the like early days, we were at a party on a rooftop on Clinton Street, which felt extremely cool in like 1997 or whatever it was. Still might be cool. Still might be cool. And there's this guy there with this sort of very big personality, and he's sort of pressuring everyone doing vodka shots, and I do a couple with him. But that's it, right? I chat with him for five minutes. Years later, Rob said to me, guess who just published a novel? And immediately I said, that guy, Gary. And he's like, yes. And, uh, you know, he was like Rob's friend in college. They knew each other. And I don't think they really... So you knew who he was friends. talking about, even though it was years later. Yeah, I just because I'd met the guy, but he was such a big personality that it stuck with me even all those years later. And the fact that he has so much to say in his books, even though they're kind of all say the same thing, um, is uh, is not surprising. And then on... Plus, wait, I'm sorry. Plus, he lived on Tom and Amber's, our friend Tom and Amber's floor. On their floor, that's right. Right, so yeah. he lived right down the hall from them. Yeah, and he was he was constantly stealing their packages. Um, <laughs> he wasn't doing not that. Not true. Um, <laughs> And then, and then the 800-pound gorilla uh, at Jennifer Egan is here on Friday night. Um, she is, I would argue... So delighted to be called an 800-pound gorilla, I'm well, sure. Well, how about this? I know. One of the top I know few you living mean. writers today. Um, Incredible she, novelist. Yeah. She is interviewing Meredith Westgate, who has a new novel out called The Shimmering State that I, I've got sitting on my night table. And so um, super excited to have her here. So anyway, 7 o'clock tonight. Wednesday, Friday, really big events at P&T Knitwear. And in uh, general, people should keep their tabs on on, uh, on P&T Knitwear's reading series. This is a great week, but they've been doing a ton of great events here. Yeah. And, and it's their stuff all the time. Like, it's not it's not like a, this is one week of right. out we're, of the ordinary. Look, there aren't that many, like, new bookstores in general. And there's certainly that many, like, cool new bookstores. And, <laughs> you know, we've got a team that is deeply embedded in the publishing world. And so, like, I think we're going to keep lining up authors of this renown on a constant basis. Yeah, sure. um, So that's number one. Number two is the request for proposals for our 2023 Hunger Campaigns comes out today. So if you are a Hunger Group 
and you are interested in us funding and running a campaign in your state to pass a piece of legislation like school breakfast or universal school meals or expand this map for seniors, if you go to solvinghunger.org and there's a dash between solving and hunger, the RFP is on there. Uh, we'd love to have you check it out. Is there a deadline on that? Yeah, yeah. Uh, but I don't know. I think it's maybe the end of September. Okay. Uh, and and we're going to have Lisa who runs we'll the We'll have Lisa Quigley on to sort of talk through it. Right. But basically, these are, we pick four or five states a year where we say, okay, we're going to run campaigns in these states. And typically, we pass bills about 80% of the time. So if, if you applied, if you are selected, pretty good shot that whatever it is you've been trying to achieve will be achieved. You can help her. Um, can number help her. three is, um, and I haven't talked to them yet, a call is being set up, but the Conservative Party in the UK use mobile voting as one of their forms of voting in their primary elections or their whatever they call it there um, on Sunday. And from all accounts, and I keep going online to try to find Go ahead, problems, sorry. went totally smoothly, right? People might not like, there's a lot of complaining in the U.S. papers about who they picked, right? And the Washington Post was bitching and moaning about it all, all morning today. But independent, I have no idea if Liz Truss will be any good or not. What you read is not super favorable. But if the conservative party successfully used mobile voting, you know, I know our critics will just try to ignore it or find some way to, to, to diminish it, but it, it's a big success and it's a big proving point. That's, that's fantastic news. And and um, uh, you you said you, you have a call with them to talk about how yeah, they Christobel's did it they... working on uh, you know Christobel Alex who who joined us um, out of the White House a couple of months ago obviously has great connections in that way. So he's setting up a call with. I, really, I want to talk to whoever ran it for the Conservative Party, not the head of the Conservative Party, um, and just see how what they did right and what they felt they got wrong and offer them our technology. We're still on pace to be done by the end of Q1 of next year, and my plan is to make it open source and free to any government that wants to use it. That's, right. That's great. So, Bradley, today we're going to start um, with some sort of uh, – well, we're going to talk about two main things. We're going to talk about uh, the no-labels uh, political movement and their – their idea of sort of getting an, uh, getting another candidate in 2024, should there be a stark sort of ideological choice between a, between probably Trump and then maybe someone on the far left for the Democrats. Right. Um, so we're going to talk about that. And then we're also going to talk, you've been visiting colleges with your daughter, Abby, so you have some thoughts about that yep. that we're going to get to after this. So let's start with, with no label. So there was a column by David Brooks last week where he gave this pretty favorable in, sort of analysis of... This idea, I guess we should explain kind of the concept. They're going to sort of clear basically a ballot, like a lane for a... They're, they're going to create a ballot line so that should the dynamic be, I'm making this up, but Trump versus AOC or something like that, um, they could run someone down the middle, probably a fusion ticket with a, I'm guessing, Democratic president, Republican VP, or maybe the other way around. Um, and their view is that this person could... Uh, attract enough votes to win the election. It was a very favorable column. Um, I have spent a lot of time working on things just like this. I have spent a lot of time in the third party movement. I have been trying to help Andrew Yang with his new forward party. Obviously, I spent a lot of time on election reform. So um, let's walk it through slowly. So yeah. the, the, the first bit, you, you mentioned you worked on this before. So that was um, in conjunction with Mike Bloomberg's 2016. Yeah. Well, but really, really even before that. Okay. So in 2012, uh, there was a group called Americans Elect. It was created by Peter Ackerman, who is the founder of Fresh Direct. Mm -hmm. um, and he had the exact same idea, which is, I am going to create an line. I think it was called Americans Elect or whatever it is, um, in all 50 states, which is not easy. It is time-consuming and it is expensive. Um, it's the, the other parties make it really hard for a reason, right? Right. Um, 
but he did it, right? And there, there was a line, and we in the Bloomberg world kind of worked with them uh, to kind of help them achieve it, um, wanting to potentially have the line for Mike should Mike choose to run. Uh, when it was, you know, Romney, Obama, there was really no need or argument for Mike to run. They were both kind of, turns out, relatively centrist. Compared uh, to where we compared are. Compared <laughs> to where we are now. Um, and there was no real path for Mike. But the challenge is, I saw this firsthand, right? Because I was part of that process, and, and Bob Greenlee, who works for us, was was really kind of embedded in there. They and got really, it all really, in, in all fifty states. Yeah, um, and they never got a candidate. Now, and maybe they would say, I think, to save face, oh, it's because with Obama, Romney, we just didn't didn't need it, right? Did they try pretty hard? Yeah, they did. And it, here's the underlying problem. Here's why the Brooks column felt very naive to me. Um, in theory. There are dozens and dozens of impressive or successful people in the world that we can name who we think, of course, everyone would vote for Mark Cuban for president, for The Rock for president. Remember, everybody's excited about Colin Powell. Oprah Winfrey, <laughs> Colin Powell, all these people. But, but the reality is incredibly different. So even if there is a focus group or a poll that shows that 80% of Americans are you know, open to voting for... I don't know, Cardi B for president or whoever, you know, whoever they would like. <laughs> That's your candidate. I know yeah, that. Yeah, exactly. Um, their best day is their first day, right? Because everyone's excited, because everyone hates the current political system, everyone loves celebrities, and then it all goes downhill from there. And they are, they didn't get to where they are by being stupid, right? And most of them know what they don't know well enough to recognize, hey, if I plunge headfirst into this field there's an incredibly high chance that it will be an de embarrassing debacle, um, and I don't want that, right? So, and, that's and so, so attracting ahead, an actual candidate who will put their reputation, their career, their money, everything on the line for a highly improbable third-party victory is extremely difficult to impossible. Now, did Trump change that? Because when Trump first starts talking about running, like he looks like the classic bullshit candidate you know, guy who's just doing it to like boost his ratings on TV or sell his condos or whatever he's going to do. And he obviously blows the field away in the Republicans. So he, does that change like someone's sure. thinking a little if, bit? If the third party. OK, so let's go back to 2012. You have Obama and Romney both seem like reasonable people. I mean, Trump talked about 2012, too, didn't he? Or did he not? I'm sure he hates all cares. of them. Um, <laughs> but yeah, if if the country were where it were in 2016 or today, and some incredibly powerful demagogue came along on a third party line, would they stir things up at least? Yeah, look, Ross Perot, who wasn't even a demagogue, but had a lot of money and a kind of impressive bio, stirred things up in the 1992 election, certainly impacted it and helped send it to, in Bill Clinton's direction. But keep in mind, the Ross Perots of the world, they don't like to lose, right? They don't run just to make a point or you know to try to help influence something. They run because they want to win whatever it is. And even Ross Perot still lost by, you know, even if he got 22%, he still came in third by a meaningful amount. And so, you know, realistically speaking, you know, that, that first day is the best day and kind of you always go downhill from there. And the media, which may do everything they can to bait you into running because they want the yeah, they want narrative, the they want right. the drama, the minute you announce, they're fucking coming after you, right, with everything they possibly <laughs> got. And... A Hollywood person, a Wall Street person, they may think that they work in a really tough industry, but like they've never had political style oppo done on them before um, with no standards. It, 
the incentive for a campaign is to put out every bad thing about you that they find, right? In the other businesses, it's leverage, it's threats, it's hinting, it's this, it's that. They just throw everything. Throw all of it, right? So you have, in this case, you have two campaigns trying to kill you, plus an entire press corps. So, um, and zillions of advocates and funders and everything else. So I genuinely believe that even though no labels, if you raise enough money, and it sounds like they've raised a decent amount already, you will get the balance. 70 million, I think, or they, I that's think their they target. Like 47 right. out of 70 or something like that. So it's 70 is enough, right? Because in 2016, when we were thinking about running Mike as an independent candidate, um, I didn't want to bother with Americans elect and all that stuff. It was just like it'd be faster to do it ourselves. And because Mike made his decision so late in the game, really we were the only ones that, that could have pulled it off. Um, it's a money thing, and it's an organization thing. If you have the money and the basic political talent and common sense, you can get on the line um, in all 50 states, but it is at least a $50 million expense. And so is it possible that no labels gets on the line in every state? Yes, although they, would you choose to spend all that money if you don't know that you have a really good candidate? I'm not sure. It may not be the smart thing to do. But even if they get someone, I, I just, absent a really crazy dynamic in the old general election for 24, it's hard to see them being able to attract anyone halfway decent to run. And the other piece is this, Joe Biden feels like the nominee, right? I don't, Democrats are basically backing off this notion that, that someone else is, is gonna run in his stead. Um, you know, he's had a couple of wins recently in Congress. Um, he made that insanely partisan, I didn't watch it, but I read about it, but insanely partisan speech the other night in Philadelphia. Um, he's, yeah, do, you, do you feel like that's the, the, the sort of threat to democracy angle that, that no, they're... No, that's about, look, no, yes. I, I, but but do, you, do you think it's, a, it's good politics on his part? Never yeah, mind. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So all of his, you know, I'm trying to protect our country, it's all bullshit, right? Like, yes, Donald Trump is terrible for democracy. No question about it. However, Joe Biden made that speech because it's good for Joe Biden, not because it had anything to do with democracy <laughs> or the country or the general well-being. And it's not to say that he doesn't on some level care about it, but he is a politician, which means the first of 100 things, the first 99 he cares about is Joe Biden. And maybe at number 100 is the state of our democracy. But it was a very partisan, very political speech, which really does imply he's planning on running. And from everything that I hear, He's planning on running. Now, he's old, so could he, like, break a hip and everything changes? Sure. But assuming that he is physically capable of doing it, I think he's going to be the nominee. I don't think anyone's even going to primary him. That's interesting, because that was my next question. Like, I mean, he, he I agree completely. Like, the, uh, this idea that he would not run after this career, and, I mean, it would it would have to take something significant major yeah. for him I to mean, change if, his mind. If Hunter Biden is guilty of the things the New York Post screams every day and, and actually gets indicted, that could do it. Um, but again, as a Biden Justice Department can even pursue that, uh, that probably not, uh, or at least he not till after the twenty, or at least not till after the twenty twenty four general election. Um, so yeah, I, I think he's he's running, and and look, given that the Republicans are going to capture at least one chamber of Congress, I know there's some sort of optimism on the Democratic side that now maybe they'll hold the House. They're not going to hold the House. The math doesn't even come close to working on it. Um, it's, you know, in a weird way, he may be a better option than someone who is highly ambitious, which he's not, or highly um, ideological, which he's not, because anything that you do get done, which will be limited, but has to be done in a bipartisan manner. And Biden is still, he has a history when he was in the Senate of working pretty well with the other party. And so 
he might be the best suited person anyway. If, if what you care about is actual progress and things getting done, he very well may be your best bet. It looks to me like no labels is kind of a Band-Aid or an attempt at a Band-Aid. So, but, uh, but there's a lot of money there. There's, there's some serious backers. Is there a way of, of using that energy, that money, those resources in a, in a, in a more meaningful way to accomplish the same goal? Is yeah, look, so like as we've talked this podcast a million times, so I've looked at this and worked on it from every angle, from creating and running third-party candidates to you know open primaries and jungle primaries and top two and redistricting and ranked choice voting and all of these things. And the reason why I have put my time, my money, and my reputation behind mobile voting and have spent a lot of money and taken a beating publicly for it um, is because I truly believe that the only way to fix the system, and I'm sure the listeners are here tired of hearing me talk about this already, um, is through significantly increased primary turnout. And the only way to do that, based on my experience in technology and venture capital, and look, I am the only person that I'm aware of that went from working in politics on all of these issues and working in government at really high levels to then um, becoming a venture capitalist and seeing firsthand how what happens when you put uh, an Uber online, a, a Roman online, a FanDuel online, whatever it is, how consumer behavior changes and adapts very quickly to account for the internet and for the increased convenience and access. So based on all of my experience, the only thing that's going to work is structural change by making it easier to vote. Um, so what could those people do? Yeah, they could. I've been the sole funder of mobile voting to date. I'm going to run out of money pretty soon. Um, not not that soon, but you know, I would love to have some help. So yeah, if you are a no label supporter listening to this and you actually want to achieve something, you know, give me a call. What happened to the Fresh Direct guy? Did he just give up after 2012? I think he might have died. I'm not sure. But his Ooh, son, <laughs> I'm not sure. Maybe he didn't. It's, it's terrible when, it must be so terrible when you're sort of like, we're kind of slightly famous and then people say that you're dead publicly. And you're like, I'm not dead. Yeah, but yeah. his son, you may have heard of him, Elliot Ackerman, who's an excellent novelist. Really, really good. Oh, novels. I have heard of him, but I've not read any. I love his books. He served in the military, um, and but most of his books are about kind of like they take place abroad, and they're sort of foreign, not foreign policy related, but they're not you know uniquely American. He wrote kind of more of a book called Twenty Thirty Four, which was much more of an openly kind of military novel. Is that like the War with China book? That one? Yeah, I think so. Um, so it was in the year that I tried to read 100 books, which means I remember nothing about any of them. But Elliot is a great So no, volume did hurt you in that. Oh, it was, the the terrible, it was a terrible idea. Yeah. Um, it hurt me in re recall. It hurt my interest in reading the entire next year. Um, it took away, you know, reading is time well spent, but not at the expense of anything. And it took away time that should have been spent doing other things. So, yeah, it was a terrible idea. With that said, I'd love to have Elliot at the store at some point do a reading. Um, we should definitely do that um, and bring his father if he's still around. He's still um, alive. Yeah, sorry, Peter, if you're <laughs> listening to this. <laughs> um, okay, so should we switch to, to uh, well, I want to ask one little political question, minor, yeah. not a big deal. Yeah. Well, it is a big deal if you're a New York State resident. Um, the, the New York Post, at least, is very excited about the new polls showing the governor's race. Zeldin has closed the gap to within five points, it says, of Hochul, who is a yes. just huge, heavy favorite going in, back. In a supposedly many, many independent poll. So look, here's the thing. A poll came out. Was it yesterday, two days ago, in the Post saying Zeldin's only down by five? And by the way, if you go back to every governor's election in New York, you and you were to go through every issue of the New York Post from August or September on, there will be a story about how the Republican gubernatorial candidate is within striking distance. That <laughs> striking story gets, so that's the term, yeah, striking that distance. That story gets written every four years, no matter what. Right. However, um, 
I think that the polling that showed recent Hochul was up by 24 is also inaccurate, right? So the reality is, yes, can a New York governor win by double digits? Yeah, absolutely. Um, but even Cuomo, and he was, you know, for as much as everyone hates him now, a very effective popular politician when he got the peak of his powers, you know, was winning these elections like 57, 43, effectively, something like that. Um, and... It's still going to be a much bigger Republican year because Republicans are much more motivated than Democrats. Yes, choice does help in the other direction, but also choice is not going to be outlawed in New York. So I'm not sure how much of a motivator it'll, it'll end up being at the end of the day. Um, two, you know, inflation is still really high. The economy feels bad. Three, even though it's not her fault, New York City feels bad, right? It feels dirty. It feels dangerous. It, fe- it doesn't feel like things are going well. Did you see that road rage video? Guys driving on the sidewalk? No. Oh, my God. Um, send, send it to me. I'll check it out. But <laughs> oh, check it out. All, all of that combined says you could have increased Republican enthusiasm and turnout and decreased Democratic enthusiasm and turnout. Um, and keep in mind, there's no other election on the ballot, at least in New York City, that's competitive in the general election, right? You know, we had some primaries that were meaningful, but the, the winner and the outcome was decided um, in the primary itself. So... It's not five. It's not 24. Sitting here right now, if I had to bet, she wins something like 56, 44, okay. something like that. And, and there's actually a third-party candidate that takes a few points. It's not quite that simple. But, but basically, she will win. She will win by a lower margin than she wants to, but it will be fine. Now, just on a purely New York City angle, is it really bad if the Republicans win um, Albany? No, I mean, is it, not at all. I mean, you think it might be good? I think that generally speaking, a big city mayor and a governor in the same party have a really hard time working together. Cuomo and de Blasio was sort of the most obvious. Um, but look, when I was in Illinois, Daly and Rod, or in reality, because Rod didn't run the government, I guess Daly and me, um, it was a pissing match, right? Because we had we're competing for the same donors, the same media, the same constituents, the same votes, the same everything. Um, and, you know, he would make some move that meant to, like, box us in, and I'd make some counter move to fuck him over. And, you know, we would go <laughs> back and forth. And look, let's be clear. Rich Daly is a million times savvier and smarter than I am, but the state actually tends to have more power most of the time, so that, that made up for the deficit. Um, when George Pataki was governor Mike Bloomberg was mayor, it actually went pretty well. Um, well, I guess in that case, they were both Republicans, but Mike wasn't really anything. Um, but when you have a governor of one party and a mayor of the other, it's much easier for them to work together because they're not competing for the same thing. By the way, same thing in the Senate. Two, when, when, when there are two members in the U.S. Senate from the same party, from the same state, they typically hate each other because effectively they're always jealous of the other person. Anything the other person, they see it as a zero-sum game where anything the other person gets, money, attention, legislative success, is directly at their expense. Whereas, again, if you have one Republican and one Democrat, you know, they're sort of living in different worlds. And as a result, they get along. Like, for example, I think as you know, Shelley Capito, Senator from West Virginia, her daughter works at Tusk Holdings. Right, her good uh, friend is Joe Manchin. <laughs> yeah, and when I was meeting with Joe Manchin about school meals, do you know who I had call him to sort of help kind of pave the way a little bit? The Republican senator from his state. Now, I have a personal relationship with her, but they have a really good relationship because... They're not competing for the same stuff. So so Adams secretly wouldn't mind if Zeldin was elected? Oh, I don't think so. Look, Mike Bloomberg constantly kept the Republican Senate in the majority, right? Funded all of these campaigns to keep 
Joe Bruno and, and Dean Scalos, who you know both had their issues, but um, in charge because otherwise shit moves so far to the left that you can't police any longer. You can't run schools well any longer. You can't run the government well any longer. So um, you're not going to have, obviously, a Republican legislature in Albany this year. Um, but do I think that in some cases, if, if Eric Adams were being fully truthful, now he may he may like Kathy Hochul personally, he may dislike Lee Zeldin, I don't know. So maybe that in this case, he personally would prefer Hochul. Right. But conceptually, and by the way, Andrew Cuomo used to privately say that he would prefer a Republican Senate, right? Because then everyone's divided and he has more power. And so, yeah, overall, it probably would be not bad for New York City if we had a Republican governor. With that said, I think Zeldin seems a little crazy. He's definitely a Trump supporter. Um, Hochul has been steady and solid, and her team is steady and solid. Uh, I'm certainly going to vote for her, um, and, and I would encourage people to do so. Um, college tours, you were in California last week? Yeah, so I want, I want to talk about this from two different angles. Okay. One is just the experience uh, as a parent of taking your kids to colleges, and I think you've, you've had this as well. So uh, not, uh, not really yet, but but we're, we're getting there. We've talked about it, but not not the official like stuff that you're already doing. Right, so, and then the second is just generally speaking, my views on college and graduate school have evolved a lot over, I'd say, the past decade or so, and you know, I think we should talk about them because it really does impact uh, how you think about where your kids should go to school and how much you think that matters or doesn't matter. So the first part is the college tour experience itself. It was great. So Abby and I, Abby has this sort of fascination and love with Southern California. She's always wanted to go to school there. Because her dad is always talking about the weather? Probably. Uh, she definitely does not listen to Firewall, that I can assure you. Um, <laughs> oh, that hurts my feelings. Yeah. Um, so... Uh, She's always wanted to. Um, her grades are not great, um, so she's not going to a top, she, she's top, a, top school. She's a bright kid, though. She's a very bright kid. She goes to a very, very good school, um, but it is exceptionally competitive. And also, you know, uh, being a rich white girl is not exactly a, a competitive advantage for applications, which means, you know, she's she not— a place kicker or a long snapper? Yeah, or none of that stuff, right? Okay. She's not a rower or any of that stuff. So um, she's playing JV volleyball this year. Um, in 11th grade. So that get, that tells you something. But um, to her great credit, she doesn't care, right? She doesn't, all she wants to do is go to a place that she finds comfortable, that she finds intellectually stimulating, that's an environment that she wants to be in. And as long as that's the case, she's going to be happy, which is all I care about. And so we looked at five schools in LA um, to varying mixed degrees of success. You want to rank them just yeah. in terms of what Bradley Tusk liked, or is that maybe inappropriate? Well, I'll, I'll just go through them. <laughs> okay. you know, no, I have a preference of them. But So the first day we looked at Scripps and Pitzer, that's part of the Claremont McKenna School yeah. of Colleges, and there were a few things that were problematic. One is it's pretty far away from Los Angeles. It's in San Bernardino County, I think. And like there was no traffic because it was the week before Labor Day. It, it was, was a long-ass drive. It was still an hour 20, hour 30 right, from LAX, and that, I got to imagine, is easily two hours when traffic is normal. So one, you're not popping into LA for lunch. Um, number two, it's a really small school, even with all the five schools combined. They're like contiguous, right? They're like they're, across the street from yeah, each other. Yeah, they're roughly, other schools would say this is one campus and you wouldn't bat an eye, right? In their case, it's five campuses. But it still felt very small. Um, and the other problem was, and this is not the, the, an indictment of the school itself, but they weren't offering tours. It was self-guided tours. You can't learn anything on a self-guided. All you do is walk around and look at buildings. You have no idea what the student life is like, what the academic life is like, you know, you know anything they really. They never do? Or they just, I don't know. Just they, while they, you weren't, were they weren't while we were there. I mean, right. the challenge is it's really hard, as I'm sure you're experiencing, 
to schedule college visits because you don't want to go there when the college is not in session because then you can't really see anything. Um, but basically when college in session is when your own kids' high school is in session, right? So you got to find these weird little pockets where you can either kid can miss school for a day or two or, you know, the first week of school uh, for, for our kids um, was a week after the first week of school for these schools in California. And so that was a logical time to go. Um, but for whatever reason, Scripps and Pitzer did not uh, offer, uh, got, you know, offer tours. And I think we did not have a good experience there, so she won't be applying. Um, we then went to Occidental, which is in L.A., kind of in the valley. Uh, Where Obama first went to school. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I didn't know that until yeah. there were pictures of him everywhere. Um, Although he, what, he only went for one year or two, two years, years? Two years. Two years, then Columbia. He went there to play basketball. Um, there's a, you know, they do not, they're not shy about mentioning that he yeah, went I'm there. Yeah, I'm sure not. Um, but Abby loved it, and I thought it was great. It's a small school. It's 2,100 kids. Um, but in Pasadena, no, 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 it's, it's in, it's in Glendale. So it's in the city of Los Angeles. It's kind of the other side of the, it's in the Valley. It's on the other side of the Hills. You know, if you just kind of keep going down, it is a, we drove to the road from there. And again, there was no traffic because it was just a quiet week in LA and it took us 20 minutes. Um, I didn't realize there was never no traffic in LA, but it was, there were surprisingly incredibly little off. Okay. And I was driving, you know, I'm not a great driver and I was driving all over. I do worry area. about you driving in LA. Yeah, I worry bit. about it too. Um, in fact, Abby has her permit here, so if this was a year later and she had her license, you know, she might have been driving. Um, <laughs> but but anyway, um, she loved Occidental. It, it felt kind of alternative, but at the same time, not like everything is about finding your safe space and, and never having anyone to disagree with you. Um, it's a small school with individual attention, but it's within the city of Los Angeles, so you can kind of get to whatever you want to get to um, fairly easily. It was a beautiful campus. The architecture was beautiful. The tour guide was great. That's probably a big part of it is just how good or not the tour guide is. Sure. Abby really loved the tour guide. They're following each other now on Instagram. Um, so that was a great, great school. And I think at the moment is probably her first choice, although we've only seen a couple of schools. We then went to... It's good to have something right away where you're yeah, like, oh, for this sure. is this, I feel and, at home look, here. Her, because her grades have not been great, the average GPA to get in is a little higher than her current GPA. Now, because she goes to such a good school, my guess is it gets weighted slightly differently. But, you know, it motivates her to bring her grades up. And also, because her grades aren't great, but be- she's like one of these kids, and, and you know, the, the school is always frustrated because her intellect and potential and her academic performance don't match up at all. And so they're always like trying to push, you know, her. Um, if she chooses to do well on the SATs, she will do well on the SATs, right? And so if she feels like, oh, my motivation to actually bother studying is that I can go to the school that I want to go to, right. I think that is a really good motivation. And so that was great, both because she found a school that she really loved, I could see it working really well for her, and I think provides a little bit of motivation without hopefully the kind of pressure kids are feeling that I think is ultimately counterproductive and harmful. Um, we saw two other schools. One is Chapman, which is in Orange County. In fact, apparently at night you can see the Disney fireworks from the one spot on the campus. Um, I was, it was very nice. It's, it's a mid-sized school, about 8,000 students, um, a little more mainstream than I would have thought she would have liked, you know, like a third Greek, it's in Orange County. It, it didn't feel like Occidental for sure. You mean a third in, in fraternities yeah, and sororities? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Not, of, like not of Greek or, yeah, everyone there's, named, everyone there's named Dimitri. <laughs> um, so, um, 
but she liked it. And I think, look, the, the tour guide also was, the kid was amazing, actually. And he did a great job selling the school. And kids were walking around seeming happy. And sure, if that's where she wants to go, th that would be fine. So that's, that's still on the list? Yeah. And I think even though it's also not that close to L.A., it's a little closer than the Claremont College is. But more important, it's, it's 8,000 people. So um, it feels bigger, right? Um, and then the third was Loyola Marymount, which is a Jesuit school right in L.A., right by LAX in like, um, it's called Playa del Mar or some, some neighborhood. Playa Vista? Playa Vista, something like that. Yeah, Playa Vista. So, I drive past it all the time. Right, because it's sort of near, right, LAX, Santa Monica, Venice, you know, Manhattan Beach, all that stuff. And um, also 8,000 students um, but in the city for sure. Not urban campus because much of L.A. is not really that urban and it's actually a gorgeous campus. Um, and she really liked it. Again, we had, we had a great tour guide. Um, it was, you know, kids seemed happy. Now it's a Jesuit school. And so we did ask a bunch of questions of like, well, how religious is it? Right. And Abby said to the tour guide, I'm Jewish. Am I going to have to go to like mass every day? And they're like, no, <laughs> you don't have to do anything. Um, so if it's just based on the principles of Jesuit education overall, I don't think that's necessarily so bad. Right. There's a ton of Jesuit schools that are like some of the top ranked schools in the country. Correct. So, so, um, so she really liked that one too. Um, I, I still think that maybe a slightly more alternative, smaller environment with more individualized attention might be better for her. Um, but I could see her going there as well. So we've now got three schools on the list that she really liked um, that I think would all be just fine or if not, if not even great for her. Um, that, you know, L.A., although far, is sort of easy to get, fly to, so I can go visit as much as I want, um, probably more than she would like. Do you think a P&T knitwear in the area is in the cards? It might be. Uh, we've got to see. I have to stop losing so much money on this one first <laughs> um, before I lose money on another one. Um, so so that's, the, that's the sort of R-specific. But I think kind of what I'll talk about more broadly is, so what, does it matter where you go to college or not? Right, and I grew up in a first. I mean, matter to who? What do you mean? Like does, just does to matter, employers, or, sorry, or does, it, does, does your the the premise that is given in lots of schools all over this country is if you want to have a successful and happy life, you need to go to a great college. Right, it is what puts you on path to to victory. Um, and I grew up in a family that completely believed that, first-generation American. Uh, my parents did go to college, but it was, you know, they were commuters to Brooklyn College, so it was not sort of the normal college experience. And it was incredibly important to them that I go to a really top school because they saw that as the, the, the ticket, right? They, and they, the next step in their yeah, kind of... And they and they very much it. bought into it. I did go to a top school. I went to Penn. It's an Ivy League school. And you know what? It wasn't a particularly great education from my perspective. Um, you know, it was a school where it just wasn't rigorous. I mean, I... You know, went abroad. I graduated early. I worked 30 to 40 hours a week at City Hall. I went out every night, and I still had like a 3.8. And it's not because I'm so smart. It's just because it wasn't that challenging. Um, and so one is, I don't know that there's a correlation between a school's ranking and how challenging it is completely. There's some, but I don't think it's direct one-to-one. -one. Two, as an employee, so I, I, there's a couple of different ways that I interact with people where it could theoretically matter where they went to college, right? One, I've got a bunch of different entities now. We hire people constantly. Um, two, I think more important and telling is we invest in startups, right? And then we invest millions and millions of dollars in each deal. And 
I never ask where the founder went to college, even if they're 26. Do they ever talk about it? You know, some people put it in their deck, and I kind of think they're douchebags when they do it. It actually It's always Harvard Business School? Stanford, yeah, something like that. It always biases me uh, against them. Um, So ultimately, um, I am putting real money, including my own money, because there's a GP match, and it's how I make a living, um, into these people without ever once wondering, asking, or caring, where did you go to school? Right. And so to me, that's pretty telling. Right. So if, if I'm not asking it about my potential employees and I'm not asking about about my potential founders, um, that certainly says something to me. So that's number two. I, I will say this, though. I mean, I, I don't know everybody who works for you, but a, a ton of them went to really good schools. A lot did, but a lot, a lot didn't. Right. And, you know, without sort of getting on here and deciding who, who I mean, Chris Coffey, who's the CEO of Test Strategies, didn't go to college. Um, he went to GW for one year, and then he worked on the Bloomberg campaign in the summer of 2001. Mike won, and he never left. And guess what? He's vastly more qualified to run Tough Strategies because of that. Jordan went to Florida State. His dad was a head of the physics department there. He had a full ride. He got his MBA there as well. Um, Jordan's a fucking genius, right? The, yeah, our listeners is. know that, right? This, Florida State's not also, con- he's going to be on the podcast week next after week. next. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. I mean, and Jordan's not con- Florida State's not considered a top 10 or 20 school or anything like that. Um, yeah, Bob went to Yale. Um, Shelly went to Duke, but you know, Megan went to Mount Holyoke, Michaela went to Colgate. So, you know, all good schools, but it's not like we're, we only hire from the Ivy Leagues or Stanford or whatever. I don't think we have anyone that went to Stanford. Um, and so you're biased against Stanford. No, no, I actually kind of, I'm biased against Yale. Yale is a school I don't like the most. It just feels the most like elite, self-righteous, left-wing, like entitled. And by the way, Bob is none of these I things know, seriously. at all. <laughs> He's like the least um, like that. And by the way, my friend Rob Gallagher, who, you know, we were doing shots with Gary Steingart on the rooftop in Clinton, they also both went to Yale. So my actual anecdotal evidence may not support this. this out. You just don't like the vibe. It just, like, whenever I think about, like, for example, people who, who criticize mobile voting, who are like the paper ballot only inside the Beltway elites and they write white papers and they go to conferences and all this shit. And they all went to Yale. Yeah, they went to Yale. And like yeah. none of them ever had a real fucking job in government or politics. Um, but they've all been told their whole lives how brilliant they are. Um, and because they've never actually accomplished anything real, they're super bitter on top of that. Um, so um, overall, one, you know, it, my own experience did not say that there's a strong correlation between a school's ranking and its actual rigor. Two, in my own experience as an employer as an, and as an investor, I don't really ever seem to ask or care, and we do pretty well, right? It'd be one thing if we were failing, like, well, maybe you should ask then. Yeah, get but, some Stanford kids in right, here. <laughs> but we, we, you know, we do pretty well, and we don't really ask. So, um, you know, that's, that's something, too. Um, and then n- number three is, because I've tried, you know, I try to think critically about my own assumptions, so where does it matter? And I think where it does matter is if you want to be in the professional class, meaning if your goal is to be a partner at Simpson Thatcher, which is a giant law firm, or a partner at Goldman Sachs, or a partner at McKinsey, or whatever, these places that you know are very linear, right? So you go from uh, a good college, a good high school, to a good college, to a good graduate school, into one of these programs, then you know you kind of advance up the ladder and you spend your life inside whatever institution that is. If that is your goal, then yeah, I do think going to a good college helps you with that. Although again, 
you could go to a lesser ranked college, you know, get a 4.0, go to a great law school, business school, whatever it is, and still get those jobs. But but nonetheless, I think it matters for that. So, but that's linear success. We talk about this a lot in this podcast. If you're not interested in linear success, if you're interested in nonlinear success, which means exponential results based on really new ideas and risk taking, um, that's the worst possible path, right? Because yeah, the the partner Simpson Thatcher making five million bucks a year, you know, is at the height of his profession or her profession, and they did that. But you know who really makes fucking money? The plaintiffs lawyers who are doing mass tort cases, and they probably did not go to anything close to, you know, an Ivy League college or law school. Or in business, do the Goldman Sachs partners do really well? Yeah, but you know what I've learned now that I'm in finance? They're kind of the low end, the low end of the spectrum, right? The people on the buy side, the hedge funds, the private equity funds, the venture funds, that's really where the real, real money is. If, if you're working you know, at a bank, yeah, you do really well. And I guess if you're the CEO over time, it adds up to quite a bit of money. But their support, their staff, um, right. that's their job. Well, so, I mean, so, we, so we, my point is, if you want to be staff, because the reality is, you know who I don't deal with in my jobs typically? The lawyers and the bankers. And you know why? I have people who do that for me. But, but we're leaving out a big area here, which is just sort of like personal enrichment, right? Which is the things you were talking about when you were talking about the schools what, at Abbey. But why would you at all think that your personal enrichment is greater at Dartmouth? Than oh, no, I'm not be, saying I'm not saying know. it is. But 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 the you know, the the I mean, the, the academic standards at a school, the higher they are, depending on what kind of student you are and what you want, like going somewhere where there's a great philosophy department, if you're really into Perhaps, philosophy, but, but doesn't so matter, right? I had dinner with um, some friends in LA the other night, and their daughter joined us. She's starting at UC Davis this week. And she turned on Berkeley. She got into Berkeley. And, you know, Berkeley is certainly a much higher risk school than UC Davis, but she's interested specifically in marine biology. And UC Davis has an amazing program for that. And to this kid's great credit, because her parents admitted, like, of course we wanted our kid to go to the super prestigious school that costs almost nothing because we're California residents, right? right? Um, but that's what she was interested in. And to their credit, they were, they were good about it and cool about it. And to her great credit... She had the sort of grit and perseverance to know what she wanted and stick to it, right? Which is really hard to do when you're 17, 18 years old. Um, and that's where she's going. And she made the right choice, right? And so enrichment can mean so many different things. You know, one of the things that they kept talking about uh, the schools we visited, because LA is the entertainment capital of the world, was sort of all of the work they do in sort of film and the connections in the industry. And look, that's not what Abby's particularly interested in, but it, it was true, right? Like, if you really, really want to work in film, you may be better off at Chapman or Occidental, wherever it is. Probably definitely NYU or USC as opposed to Harvard or Yale. Yeah. Um, and so it, it really does depend on what you're interested in. And then the final piece is as a parent, right? Um, the amount of pressure being put on kids to get really high grades so that they could get this winning ticket to life that turns out is not a winning ticket, and at best it's a winning ticket to a miserable fucking job at a law firm, um, <laughs> is so intense, and they put so much pressure on themselves, and we live in a world where eating disorders are so predominant. Girls cutting themselves are so predominant. Teen suicide is so predominant. Alcohol and drug abuse is so predominant that if you think that there's no correlation between the pressure these kids feel to get good grades in school so that they can get into a really selective college um, and all of these manifestations of it, you're out of your fucking mind. And so in order to basically convince kids to put so much pressure on themselves that they hurt themselves in different ways, so what? So they could go to the number 14 ranked school instead of the number 36 ranked school, and that, that's going to do what for you? Nothing.
Bradley, well said. Um, we uh, just to remind you, Jennifer Egan and Gary Steingart at the uh, at PNT Knitwear this week, yep. and we will be back on Thursday. Cool. See you guys.